everybody, welcome to another episode of Magical Musings. Um, we're actually doing better. We're recording these more often, so that's always a good thing. Uh, on the other end of the call is, as always, Brian. Hello, all. <laughs> everything's going well and, for you. Yeah, everything. I, I hope everything's going well for everybody else, too. Um, I did want to, uh, well, let's start with, uh, this is episode 26, I'm pretty sure. And we're going to be talking about pantheons, uh, deities, jobs w- w- that deities have. We're going to talk about the concept of one god rather than many gods. And possibly, hopefully, also put to rest the uh, mosh pit of deities. So <laughs> come on in, grab all of your drinks and snacks and everything, and join us for the next two hours. All right, so um, that taken care of. Let me. Uh, I, I did want to uh, stay talk a, a little bit about one of the things that had, we had happen over uh, time, um, and I'm talking about me at this point. I want to th- thank everybody who sent anything, any kind of help, sent any wi- good wishes, uh, anything for our recent troubles that we've been having for the past year and a half. Um, things have actually gotten much better. Uh, we have a house now, um, and we've moved into it. We are renting it, but uh, hopefully things will go okay. Uh, my daughter has a job, so she and Mary are going to support me now, so that's going to be a nice thing. Um, I also wanted to talk about an email that we got from uh, a gentleman uh, not too long ago in Minnesota, uh, Druid. Um, named John. Uh, He sent us a a long email talking about how he just subscribed to our podcast and how everything is wonderful and that we he loves us and then he told us all about his Druid Grove up there. So shout out to him. Um, But he had raised a question uh, in the last episode. um, Not the yeah the last episode we were talking about uh, the shaman um, and talking about uh, the definition and how to pronounce it and he says uh, John asks at, at this point um, speaking of shamanic stuff Joy in one of the recent episodes you were quite resolute in your pronunciation of shaman and I was curious about your reasoning on how to say it properly to be honest I've always cringed when I hear it pronounced shaman and my understanding is that the Russian language was the language linguistic conduit that brought the Siberian Evenki word into worldwide, word, worldwide use, probably worldwide. Um, when I was in college, I spent yeah. When I was in college, I spent a month in northern Russia to complete my minor, and we were in a place where shamanism was making a comeback. I was given a few cultural gifts by someone, which had me asking them about uh, shamans in those parts. The pronun- their pronunciation was shaman, with the stress on the second syllable, and both syllables with a soft A. I know either pronunciation of shaman is considered proper English, tomato, tomato, but I hear it pronounced shaman. Uh, most often in American English, so I'm curious to hear your reasoning for it, so I can t- continue to learn in my, and grow in my understanding of things. Well, uh, John, I'll be really honest with you. Um, my pronunciation comes from being lazy. <laughs> I have uh, read it uh, shaman uh, quite a number of times. I've heard it pronounced shaman many, many times. It always struck me as one of those 
instances where it was somebody being lazy about it. I mean, there are multiple pronunciations. There's shaman, there's shaman, there's shaman, uh, as you were saying. Um, and it just I guess it depends on how you learned it initially. Uh, I learned it as shaman. Um, I didn't think that that sounded correctly uh, to the uh, northern Russian Baltic areas where the word originates from. I mean, uh, and talking about the magical practitioners of that area, uh, I thought in my studies that shaman would be more correct than others. I'm not sure, quite sure how to put this, but that, that sounded better to me and a bit more respectful, and it seemed to encompass more of the magical dynamic rather than just shaman um, or shaman or however, you know, however each individual person pronounces it because we're not talking just about the um, – Icelandic Russian peoples and their uh, and their magical practitioners. We're also talking about the medicine men of the Native Americans um, who got folded into it because a lot of their practices are pretty much the same. Uh, there's also the witch doctors of um, the diasporic religions in Africa that kind of got rolled into that as well. So you've got all these diverse cultures, and we need kind of a a label to say, okay, we're talking about the whole scope rather than just one culture's people, if that makes sense. Fair enough. So that's how I came to, to, to the way I pronounce it. And believe me, if you talk to me in, in person, I'll be saying shaman after a little while. Um, but then, you know, there's always the old joke of don't squeeze the shaman, so, you know, which comes from the toilet paper. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, all right. So with that being disposed of, <laughs> let's go ahead and move into uh, the topic of the day, which are deities and gods. Um, once again, I mean, the the topic of gods and mythology is probably something that you can go for months on in two-hour blocks and still not cover the same material. True. Um, you know, it's just it's, – it's one of those really big – I mean, Joseph Campbell dedicated his life to just mythology, just the mythology, and that was his entire life. You know, multiple specials. He was seen as a world-class expert, and that didn't – you know, and while the divinities got – rolled into it somewhat because he had to know about the divinities simply from reading their mythology that didn't encompass them now you know because it, it dealt with the history of those beings not how they're acting in a oh what's what i'm looking for a contemporary time period you know, and there's still there's still very vital and very huge pieces that we have to have in our communities. You know, look at all the people that are are studying it now. Well, and I I, I think with Joseph Campbell too. I mean, he was approaching it from a very different perspective. Um, not as much about 
strictly kind of understanding each deity as an individual, but rather sort of in the overall context of spiritual growth. Um, so he was looking at them more as archetypes. Um, and yeah, I get the impression that he was an agnostic, really. Well, it, but I don't know. It's strange because I, I, I've heard that he didn't really subscribe to any religious belief, but um, he almost sounds like um, a modern Gnostic, except that um, he also. I mean, I think it depends on the pantheon he was talking about because. Um, in his earlier books, I mean, you could see very strongly that he, he reflected the um, scholarship of the time, you know, in the late 40s and 50s and so on, where mm-hmm. there was just kind of a generic label of, you know, Occidental mythology, um, and he kind of fit everything into that, whereas I think in his later years and into uh, The Power of Myth, you could see more that he was doing a really detailed comparison between pantheons um, and looking at them from a more personal growth approach, I guess. Mm, yeah, that, that, that does kind of show in his writings. I mean, the the power of myth, I think, was, was first, wasn't it? Uh, and then he came out with The Hero of a Thousand Faces? No, The Hero of a Thousand Faces actually was written back in 1947. Oh, okay. I think it was one of his first books. Um, but then he wrote, like, The Masks of God, and that was like a... I can't remember if it was a trilogy or a four-part series, but he he addressed, like, a certain group of pantheons in each of those and yeah I mean the Hero of a Thousand Faces I think just because it's been so um reinterpreted well, studied well it, it, yeah I mean it's been influential all over the world in, in like the understanding of Jungian psychology in like the writing of movies I mean um George Lucas is said to have um written the Star Wars trilogy based on, you know, Hero with a Thousand Faces, so. Yeah, and he did, you can definitely see uh, Joseph Campbell's uh, works in the Star Wars trilogy, the original and the next three, the the prequel ones. Um, You can also see Akira Kurosawa, you can see... um, several influences from like the seven samurai and things like that and it's it's really fascinating to see the um video uh for the power of myth the series that they did was shot at skywalker ranch yes it was and it was i thought that was pretty cool yeah it definitely was um (laughs) i mean you could see the library there and i kind of drooled over that (laughs) yeah i mean walls of books and i was like that would be great (laughs) <laughs> yes, it would be, but uh, you and I will probably not be that rich anytime soon. <laughs> well, and who has the wall space for that many books, really? Well, if you have a ranch, I mean, you know. That's true. <laughs> Move over, cattle. I'm putting books here. Um. So let's um. So what were what Mary? <laughs> oh. Apparently she's saying that if we have to, ha- if we're going to have a ranch, we have to have animals. 
bulls and things like that. A glass jar of bugs or something. Yeah. Needle wrench, you know, whatever. We could do it uh, as our um, we're 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 doing our flea circus. That's exactly. It. The yeah. fact that you can't <laughs> see them from that distance doesn't mean they're not there. I have no, a ranch dedicated you know, to these things. There's little Fifi, and she's dancing, and she's having 100,000 kids, you know. Exactly. <laughs> For those of you that don't get that, there was a cartoon a long time ago with Fifi and her boyfriend, the clown. And <laughs> it was kind of – it was like six minutes of, of animation. and just funny as crud as long as you understood the references going along with it. I vaguely recall that you say that. Yeah. <laughs> Post depression era, um, excitement and everything. And one of the one of the things was the guy that owned the flea circus was um, while he was taking the tickets, he was handing magnifying glasses to all the people so that they could see the fleas <laughs> up on stage. Anyhow, that. wow, you do remember that? It. I mean, <laughs> mind you, I grew up watching all those like you know early 20th century cartoons from Looney Tunes and so on. So, yeah. Before political correctness said, those are bad. Yes. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe. Okay, anyway. (laughs) Here we go. I mean, we're not even ten minutes into the show and we're already doing this. So, (laughs) those of you just joining, this is our normal way of doing everything is to just go off on riffs. Um. So I guess one of the first things that we should address is that um, each different culture has their own set of gods. Okay, Now, this is not to say that uh, these gods – one god is better than another, but understand the genesis of where they came from. Okay, Back before BCE, before the Bible started recording it, you had – People that were living together in family groups, okay, they they would you know hunt together, they would uh, live together, they would you know do all the things that normal people do together in that family group. Um, eventually, the wild animals were doing what wild animals do, and they were hunting themselves, and they would start eating the the people that you know couldn't defend themselves, and like nature does. So they started – so the humans started packing together into what are called clan groups uh, by anthropologists to, for mutual protection. And this is where this, the concept of civilization, societies, cultures, uh, language, towns, uh, all of that stemmed from is that grouping together to be in a to, – to, for mutual protection, okay? Well, and and, it, I mean, it was a practical matter as well because, I mean, group of people, you have specialists in – or guys who are better at certain things. you got women who are better at certain things, um, and then you know nobody had to be an expert in everything because there was somebody you could go to and trade you know, good for service or vice versa. And it was also practical in, in a food standpoint because, I mean, if you've got the husband and he's going out and he's hunting for his wife and two kids, that just to do the nuclear family example, uh, he's got to bring back enough food for four people. Well, as one person, 
that's pretty you know difficult to go out and hunt, kill, and drag it all back every day for those people. So maybe you'll take down something the size of a dog. Uh, German Shepherd or so, and you'll lead on that, and the the four of you will lead on that a couple of days. But in a group situation, a clan situation, what you have is you have five or six of these people that are hunters that can go out, and now you can take down a mastodon with spears and with rocks and stuff, and then all of you can cut it up, and all of you can drag it back. Well, exactly. And there's more food for an extended period of time for more people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. From a caloric expense, it, it it does make more sense to go in a group, take one big animal instead of having to spend hours a day trying to get hold of enough to feed the four people, you know. You know, and that's that's the same reason that during the winter, uh, uh, animals pack up to to do their hunting. I mean, normally when you think about wolves and foxes and other you know small predators like that, you see family units, two, three, maybe that are going out and getting food and coming back during the summer. During the winter months, when food is scarcer, they pack up and they go out and they take down larger game. And so that everybody has more food, or at least the same amount of food, you know. For sure. And, I mean, anyway, back to the whole idea. I mean, the concept of grouping together um, creates – well, I mean, the origins of religion are, are kind of discussed in different terms. But the idea basically is that at some point in human history, it was decided that there must be a spirit within the body so that um, when a person died, if you buried them or what have you, um, the idea of leaving gifts or let's say leaving them a survival kit for their, you know, spirit um, became a, a, a common practice every time someone was buried. Um, mm-hmm. And, because, I mean, if they needed this, this sword during their lifetime, they probably are going to need it wherever they're going next. Especially if they weren't a good person and the underworld's full of vengeful spirits. <laughs> or something. Uh, so, yeah, the Graves Goods started, but also they had a, a, a primitive kind of understanding. Now, for a moment, just put yourself into that mindset. You are... Um, a primitive person, you're having to deal with getting uh, your various caloric intake and your food and your housing and your shelter and everything every single day. You're trying to make sure that you and the people that you care about stay alive. You are having to move around quite often because the game moves. Uh, the the vegetable plant material that you know that you can eat uh, gets exhausted in one area, and you have to go to another place to get it. This is the hunter-gatherer society that we're talking about. And you are focused on day-to-day needs like that. Okay, But now you have um, time when you start grouping together with others to sit down and think about other things. Okay? So you start questioning stuff like why does the uh, crest grow in this section of the of the ground? Why doesn't 
this other plant that is just as good grow in this area? And they don't understand animal they, – they understand trial and error animal husbandry and trial and error um, growing. And you, you take this part of the, the plant, you put it in the ground, it grows another plant like it. Okay, uh, So that's trial and error stuff, but sometimes they do better in certain places. Sometimes they don't do as good in others. So what causes that? Now you actually have time to sit down and start considering that type of question. You have the leisure time. You have time where you can be concerned about it instead of simply being focused on day-to-day -day survival. Exactly. And so they and so they started questioning it. They started thinking about it. They started, you know, asking, well, why does the rain come when we need it now and not when we needed it last week? Is there somebody controlling the rain? Because the observable universe that they have right at this point is people around them control different things. This person controls who gets the food. This person controls who uh, goes out and fights if another group comes to try to take what we have. This person over here controls um, this field of plants and who gets those – resources. So why shouldn't there be somebody that we can't see that makes the rain come? Why shouldn't there be somebody that we can't see that would keep the river flowing and have the fishes in the river for us? Well, and I think too, I mean, I've I've touched on it in past episodes, but I think the idea is that these things were a part of nature and because aspects of human life required causes, um, the idea originally would have been like the sun has to, you know, either be, a, you know, caused by something or be in itself, a, you know, a being that, you know, comes and goes or, you know, the rain has to be caused by something. Um, so I think... The general consensus is that in, in the early sort of spiritual observations of, of the species that things weren't specifically people. They were powers that that eventually started being um, – Started getting their own personalities and stuff. This is the genesis of animism, by the way. And you start off all the t every time uh, when you're talking about these types of cultures with an animistic culture. Everything has an animus. Every uh, item that you can see and interact with has a spirit that either has to be placated or asked or uh, thanked for whatever it is they're doing. Okay. Then you start getting into more sophisticated versions of that with shamanism. And then into uh, pantheism, and then into uh, duotheism, and then into just theistic belief. Exactly. I mean, it, it's it's quite interesting to look into the history of you know, or at least the speculative history of religion, because um, the the idea is essentially that these powers go from amorphous concepts that to something that perhaps we can you know, convinced to, you know, will 
will do things for our benefit if we offer them gifts to, you know, beings that have essentially human consciousness. I mean, they're anthropomorphized. Um, and you can see this in the, especially the history of um, the Egyptian gods. I mean, oh yes, uh, you know, they go back, <laughs> they go from like this amorphous, you know, sort of animistic religion to, you know, animals and beasts being responsible for certain aspects of life to um, the creation stories where you've got um, Newt and Geb, um, the sky and earth respectively, um, who interestingly enough were female as the sky and male as the earth, which, you know, is different from most people's perception of Mm -hmm. The concept, but you know, and then through over, through the history of Egypt, I mean, you see their their gods taking on different forms, you know, human bodies, animal heads, or what have you, um, or having specific animal forms that are attributed to them, to you know, just kind of human beings with their respective attributes, etc. So, mm-hmm. um. Yeah, and then you have you know all the mythologies that are rolled around them, uh, and the stories of what they do and how they do it, you know. And I always found it really fascinating that in the mythological stories, the gods were just as petty and ungrateful and as much of an asshole as humans were. Um, well, and the interest. Then you have. Then you have the big mythology that came out, oh, about 2,000 years ago, where actually, no, that's not the case. God's perfect. You know? Well, I find it really interesting, too, because most people, when they're introduced to mythology as young people, they tend to be introduced to the classical world first. Um, mm-hmm. Because I suppose the idea is that that was the earliest European history or mythology. So... Let's take a look at that, because from that, everything else sort of took shape. Um, well, plus Edith Hamilton's in every single uh, library, uh, school library that I've ever heard of, and Bullfinch's is probably the second most popular. You're not really going to find many copies of the Bhagavad in a school library. <laughs> that's true, anymore. unfortunately. Um, Bhagavad Gita, you know, um, the various Eddas and sagas, you know, of Norse mythology, etc. I mean, they... The only way that I learned that Wales even had a mythology is by reading um, the Lloyd Alexander Prydain series, which a lot of those stories are taken right out of the Mabinogion, and then I'm like, okay, and here's the Mabinogion. Somebody handed it to me, and I'm looking at it going, what the hell is this? And it's, oh, it's the mythology of Wales. And I went, you know, and I started reading through it and went, wait a second, there's that story, and there's this story, and there's this story. and <laughs> Exactly. Um, you know, they had to sneak it in there. Well, and I think, I don't know, maybe in your case you probably encountered the same thing, but when I was first looking into paganism, um, I found a lot of references to Greek mythology. Um because obviously it was the most common for most people, but then as I got further and further into my exploration of Wicca in those days, um, you saw a lot of authors drawing on sort of Celtic um, pantheons. So, you know, yeah. you you saw a lot of reference to Irish, particularly Irish because of the breadth of material available that discussed the Irish pantheon. Um mm-hmm. You know, some might touch on 
Welsh, some might touch on Manx, you know, etc. And in each case, I mean, it was primarily Irish because there was just so much information available. And then you'd, you'd hear about these other ones and you'd kind of go, wait, those sound way more interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But the material just wasn't available to research those well. Um, and that was the that was the big problem is that the material wasn't available. There weren't people looking into this stuff. They weren't going out and doing a lot of research. I mean, we talk about Joseph Campbell a lot on this show, but it's because he was pretty much the groundbreaker in studying all these mythos and all these mythologies and looking into the lives of the gods, and they were the basis for blessedly near everything with paganism. I mean, you got the you got Joseph Campbell's books um, that were written in that. You've got the Golden Bough. You've got Aradia, and you may be, if you're very desperate, uh, picking up a copy of the White Goddess. And that was it. It's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, prior to uh, books by like Gerald Gardner and um, Vivian Crowley and so on. I mean, you really, if you wanted to take a scholarly approach to paganism, that was really all you could find was, you know, the Golden Bough, um, White Goddess, again, if you were desperate, you know, Bullfinch's mythology, (laughs) etc., um, yeah, it was the province of scholars, and Mary points that out. I mean, the, the, they were the only people that really had the leisure time to sit down and study this stuff. And most of the early stuff wasn't looking into the information behind the, the mythology. It was just cataloging the mythology and getting it written down. A lot of it really was. But then you kind of see this sort of phenomenon happening in the late 19th century in, in like, the British Isles primarily, but in sort of scholastic circles um, where because the material was becoming more and more familiar to people about um, ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and the mythologies for those regions, um, you started seeing kind of this, I want to sort of call it like almost an early neo-paganism that springs up where you've got um, this kind of return to the worship of Pan. Uh, And you see that in books like, um, I want to call it The Blessings of Pan. It's this book where that talks about um, kind of this little village in rural England that there's a kid who wanders through the forest and he happens upon not Pan himself, but the pipes that Pan played and happened to have left behind. So what he does is he picks these up and he starts playing them and he gets, he sort of experiments with them and teaches himself to play. And every time someone hears the pipes playing, they suddenly develop this sort of, pagan spirit within them. So this whole rural, you know, church-based English village basically converts to paganism because this teenager's playing a panpipe. Because he's screwing around. <laughs> essentially, yeah. And it was a really interesting book. Um, it's written by Lord Dunsany, D-U-N-S-A-N-Y. If you can find it, it's a fantastic read. Um, but there are other books like that where, you know, they talk about this kind of 
discovery of the pagan roots of Western civilization kind of thing, and it's of everything. fascinating. Yeah, and you know, there's there's any number of examples of this. Uh, there was um, uh, Wind in the Willows, Kenneth Graham, uh, written in the 50s. Now, a lot of people don't realize this because they've only read the um, abridged versions of Wind in the Willows. But if you get the unabridged version, there is an entire chapter dealing with paganism, with um, uh, Pan, with the anthropomorphic uh, otters and, and everything like that. The For those of you that know – um, there's the chapter is called uh, the green green man at the gates of dawn, or the piper at the gates of dawn. That's what it's called. Uh, essentially, one of the animals' kids gets lost, and uh, two of the main characters go looking for him and wind up in an estuary where they haven't been before uh, because they've been out all night looking for this child, and they find the child all curled up, very safe, very comfortable. Uh, in a um, on an island, and they meet this guy that has been playing these pan pipes all this not all night, and just as the sun is coming up, and that's the end of the chapter. You know, it's very any pagan in the world who read it would be going, yep, 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 yep. That's it. That's it. You know, it's true. I mean, it, it's quite clear that you know, in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries. There was an absolute fascination with Pan as an archetypal figure of, of wilderness, of paganism, you know, etc. And, I mean, it you really do see it in a lot of the the stories and that sort of thing that, that were written at the time. Um, I mean, you've mm-hmm. got even, like, um, an old book called The Garden God, which is um, basically kind of like a, a middle school kid who has been having these sort of homosexual dreams, I guess. And he's envisioning a certain kind of like a kid he's, you know, who's he's never met. He's basically like personifying Pan, I guess. And mm-hmm. then he meets this kid who looks exactly like he's dreamed and they become really close friends and they start, you know, going out on, you know, wilderness adventures together and that sort of thing. Um, but there's, it's quite cool to see that, you know, prior to modern paganism, there was this aspiration to return to that pagan spirit because people saw it as more, I think it was honestly, um, kind of a touching on, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's noble savage concept Mm -hmm. because of the fact that, you know, everyone in the old world had this notion that, you know, the new world's aboriginal population was like the closest thing to, you know, to paradisiac, like living and, you know, they were the closest thing to the pure state of human beings and so on. So, and you can still see that kind of uh, 
even now with uh, various people that are, you know, oh, the Native American Aboriginal societies is the greatest thing in the world, you know, and they were so peaceful and they had, you know, care of the earth and everything like that. And I, I, I look at it and I go, you know, that's a bunch of bullshit. They were just as destructive and just as um, non-caring about the consequences 20, 50, 100 years from now as we are. The only problem is they didn't have the scale that we could destroy the Earth on. Well, and I think part of it, too, is that it got tied up, like, within the, the 20th century particularly. Um, the majority of people who, like, still cling to that Rousseauian noble savage idea are, like, sort of the hippie era people who who kind of idealized native spirituality and moved it forward into this sort of pseudo new age um modification i'm even going to call it of you know the, the original concepts that might have been behind that spirituality um so no longer do you see genuinely native spirituality because um even my own relatives tend to lean toward christian spirituality um when they talk about spirituality at all um i had an uncle or have an uncle i guess who converted to uh baha'i um on a whim and apparently he takes quite a lot of pride in converting my grandmother to the baha'i faith before she died um and so I, I'm not sure that what people consider native spirituality anymore is really a pure sense of any of that. It, it, it seems to be more of a modified New Age spirituality, which, you know, I'm, I'm fine with because I can see the benefit in, in what is called native spirituality now. Um, and I, I can see that there are some traditional elements, but... Again, it's basically kind of a modern application of some traditional elements. It, you know, the same way that we have modern paganism that is based loosely on some elements of ancient paganism. But yeah, and that's you know that's something else that I've, I've seen over and over. Yeah, based loosely on. Um, you were mentioning how the Celtic spirituality or the Celtic deities got rolled into a, the beginning Wicca, and how everybody for a long time thought it was Celtic. And somebody came out with a paper that says why Wicca is not Celtic, and it's like ten pages breaking down the whole. This is not Celtic spirituality. This is something else that's based on Celtic spirituality, and it has very little to do with actual Celtic spirituality, except for possibly the deity names. Oh, exactly. <laughs> that's about it. And I think if, if you are the type of pagan who really seriously does any research, you know that's the case. I mean, you're honest about the reality of where it comes from, but then you get people who... I almost want to guess it was um, Isaac Bonowitz who said it, but, you know, there's also the reality that it doesn't matter how old the paganism is so much as does it work now. Um, yeah. And a lot of people feel this need to validate 
their spiritual path by holding on to an ancientness, which is almost kind of a weird um, primitive concept of religion, because even if you look at the cultures of you know the past that we draw modern paganism from i mean most of them didn't literalize their stories they didn't like cling desperately to one single pantheon as the only possible reality of the world um that's more of a modern take on ancient paths um because you look at something like the Vikings, um, they are held up as as kind of these worldly, you know, traders who happen to cling desperately to their own pantheon and whatnot. But the truth of the matter is, if you look at history, it, they moved around across the northern, you know, across Europe. They moved around, you know, into Asia Minor. Um, the Galatians um, from the, the I want to say the New Testament um, were actually a colony of like Northern Europeans who happened to have transplanted into Turkey. Um, and while they had their beliefs, they weren't against making use of the pantheons of other cultures. Like in most ancient pagan societies the idea of holding on to a single pantheon was weird because it wasn't really reflective of you know a person's specific interests like you might have let me let me interrupt for just a second cuz this brings up the idea that just out of a pragmatic practical sense the grouping up you have this family unit over here that has these deities and you have this family unit over here that has these deities and they're grouping up with a third family unit that has different deities and you're going to have to cooperate with each other in order to keep all the deities going correctly and you know just in general get along with each other you're going to have to acknowledge their deities and they're going to have to acknowledge yours sorry go ahead no that that's completely reasonable and it does make sense because ultimately what the idea of a town forming i mean each family would have had their spirits and deities and ancestors and so on that they were dealing with the the formation of cities was basically a collaboration of these tribal clans that you know, brought all their deities into yet another collective. So temples were built to deities that happened to be quite common. You know, if like 12 different tribes came together and they happened to share the worship of, let's say, Zeus, then all their, you know, facets of Zeus, you know, um, there's one called Zeus Melisaios who's actually like associated with bees and he was a you know one little region's version of Zeus you know there's like Zeus the the thunder god there's all sorts of faces of Zeus but because they were all variations on a theme you could build one temple to Zeus and worship all his different facets there mm -hmm. and and that's where you start getting the the idea uh, forming that the gods have jobs and that they have archetypes because Campbell points out, and he spends chapters 
on yes. deity yes, archetypes um, and all the different archetypes that there are out there and what they do in the context of the cultures that they're taking care of. And he uses this as a way to show that these deities are the same throughout the world, that there's always going to be a god of youth, that there's always go- – or a deity of youth. There's going to be a deity of beauty. There's going to be a deity of the sky. There's going to be a deity of home. And he uses that to, to kind of, I don't know, mesh everything together as into these universal archetypes. I think it's more along the lines of, okay, I have my personal deities in my family, and my family has these deities, and we say that this spirit takes care of our house. And so now we're grouping up in a uh, clan with somebody else, and they have their house spirits. And so – they have their house spirits, and we have our house spirits, so all those house spirits are kind of the same, and you call your house spirit Billy, and I call my house spirit Charlie, and uh, it can be Billy Charlie, and that's how we have that, that deity, and we can just – you know, whenever we're talking about it, we say Billy Charlie, and we know who we're talking about, and then we move into a city where they have individual house spirits for everybody. And then you get the okay the uh, the house deity of whatever you know is now in a temple, and that's how these these uh, pantheons started generating and started coming together and started gelling out of just individual spirits. Exactly. Um, At least that's my take on it. That's how I've seen it done when I when I reason it through. Well, I. It makes sense because I mean, the the whole way that city states in in like the ancient world formed was because tribal clans got together. Then you know you get a dozen or so clans, they form a city. Those people decide that it's a, probably a good thing as a common community to be willing to defend each other. So they become a, you know a city state, etc. And then you cluster a group of city states together, you get a nation, etc. So mm-hmm. I mean the fact that they could find common ground with all these variations on gods they worshipped, you know, it gave them the means to strengthen bonds because they they built temples to the the common deities that they shared. And and you can still see it when you start looking in the history of like the the Baltic states or into uh, the Germanic tribes because they were tribes, and you know you can see it really clearly when you start talking about the Bedouin, when you have or or the Scottish clans. I mean, just okay. Back in the day, there weren't clans. There were families. They didn't have tartans. They didn't have they, – they had long things of cloth that they wrapped around each other or themselves to keep warm, and they were you know, made in a very specific way. Queen Victoria comes along, and she says, well, I can't tell this clan from that clan, so this clan over here I'm assigning this specific pattern of tartan, and they're the only ones that are allowed to wear it. And everybody else that tries to wear it gets killed. This clan over here, I'm 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 giving you a, another pattern of tartan, and that's your clan tartan, and you're the McGoverns, and you're the you know, <laughs> you know it kind of you know that's kind of how it, it wound up doing with religion too, 
you know, the Inuit tribes, the totem poles that everybody is like, you know, was gaga over back in the 70s that they were so beautiful. They start out at the very bottom with the community deity that holds them all together. And as you progress up the pole, you get more specific deities based on who's carving it. You'll have community deity, then you'll have uh, the local deity, then you'll have the, the clan deity, then you'll have the family deity, and then you'll have the personal deity on the very top. You know, and this was normal. This was this happened all the time. And as long as you had, you know, the collection together down at the bottom holding the entire community together, at least I think that was the pattern. Um well you know, it was fine. <laughs> I, I mean I, I don't know I if it's top down or bottom up. <laughs> I it was from the bottom up. Um because I I would assume that, you know, but I'm only speculating based on sort of this idea that maybe from the ground up, I mean, you, you build a, anything on its foundation, right? So when you've got something grounding a, a structure, you you've built it on its strongest point, etc. So it built, you know, builds from the ground up, um, and what totem poles basically are. Um, is a collection of symbols that represent particular moments in history or or particular um people in history um or again you know like different spirits that happen to be important in a particular series of events so um you'll see a lot of ravens eagles bears killer whales um because those as clan totems are all considered powerful, but each of those has their own sets of stories as well. Um, like Raven is the trickster, but he's also kind of the creator. So if you look at the Haida stories, um, humanity comes from a clamshell that Raven happened to fly over and see on a beach. Um, it's this rather large clam, you know, the world existed, it had already been made, um, you know, and it was good. Uh, <laughs> but he sees this big fat clam lying on a beach one day, and he goes, well, because, you know, Raven is naturally curious. You can see this if you ever see them in person. Um, so he flies down, and then he, he kind of hears these voices coming out of this shell, and he's like, well, that's a strange thing. So... He finds a way to pry it open, and then out pop all these people. Um, there's actually a really famous um, sculpture by um, a, a Canadian carver named Bill Reed, who carved Raven sitting on top of a clamshell with people climbing out the edges. And it's, it's called Raven and the First People. It's a fantastic sculpture. Uh, it's in the UBC Museum of Anthropology. If you ever go to Vancouver, B.C., I, I really recommend that museum. It's fantastic. Um, but, you know, then you've got Raven who is involved in other ways as well. And he's the one that brings the light into the sky. He, you know, to differentiate darkness and light. And, you know, it, it. so he's got all sorts of important roles. But he is essentially what the 
Greeks would have referred to as Hermes. He's like the trickster. He's he's the educator. He's the one who brings wisdom. You know, he's the equivalent of Thoth in the Egyptian you know pantheon as well. So he 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 basically teaches people to exist. So, and with that, you know, you've got several other deities that do that. It's interesting that uh, thinking about the Celtic pantheons. Um, you don't really have anybody having to teach people how to be people. Um, now I'm gonna I'm gonna admit here that I haven't studied all of the mythology. I've studied the mythology of certain deities in the Celtic pantheons, but I can't think of a creation story in the Celtics. I mean, I'm sure there is one. I mean, there's one in Norse, and there's uh, several in the Greeks and, and Romans and such. I can't really think of a, of, a, of a Celtic creation story. I imagine that's... Oh, no, wait. There there was. There was the... Um, the uh, Brand goes over the sea and fights the Irish, and uh, the cauldron of rebirth is used... And when the cauldron is broken, uh, the poison gas flows out over the land and kills everyone, with the exception of like seven people that are safe in a cave. And they start the the Irish people afterwards. I mean, there's immigration stories. Yeah, I mean, I think immigration stories are quite common throughout the ancient world, because... I think it was just a reality of life, right? Like, you know, trade routes established, you know, people moving one side to the other of the continent. It was inevitable that there would be groups of people that went, hey, I like this landscape, and these people are A-OK. So they would move (laughs) into a new area, and, and, you know, they would either adapt the deities of that area or bring their own in, and then it would be like, oh, well, neat, Let's, let's... get to know your deities better because they're similar to ours. Yeah. And don't ever let anybody say that the ancient fill-in-the-blanks didn't steal liberally from other uh, religions because they did. They did constantly. Uh, the Romans were famous for it. <laughs> yes, they, they were. They, they move into an area and they say, oh, your gods are like our gods and this is our god's name and now you're going to call your gods our god's name since they're the same god anyway. <laughs> well, and I think with the Romans too, I mean, the idea was that as the Roman Empire expanded, I mean, it only made sense not to constantly battle the new territories over the names of deities, but rather to adapt them and to... It wasn't really until the uh, the Catholic Church came into existence in the 4th century that you see sort of the idea of trying to dominate um, the religious beliefs of a particular area by sort of playing bait and switch with their religion and, and rituals. Um, prior to that, I mean, the Romans basically moved into an area and went, okay, well, since it's not going to do any harm, you're welcome to worship the gods that you've been worshiping for generations. However, just so that you can maintain your ties to the Roman Empire, we're going to put a statue of 
the particular, you know, ruler of the empire, and now you can place some offerings for him as well. And that was basically all the Romans required of, of each territory, was like the addition of the current ruler um, to the pantheon, say, of deities that they were worshipping. Um, when you think about that, I mean, you know, it's it's smart as crud. Well, the whole idea of Christianity really was a matter of manipulating um, the people by dominating the religions, right? The whole idea of Christianity was that it was meant to unify the entire empire under a single god, basically. Yeah, and, you know, it's... Them making the decision not to, you know, force others to worship their deities was kind of smart because it took a lot of the resentment out of it. Absolutely. I mean, when when you think of one of the things that always struck me in when I was Christian is that you know Jesus was crucified. Jesus was crucified. Yeah, Jesus was crucified. You know why he was crucified? Not because of, of the sins, but because he was uh, preaching without a permit, essentially. And Jewish people were the ones that were demanding that he be punished. The Romans didn't want to do it. They were like, what? He's preaching without a permit, and it's a big deal. He's a smart guy. He's talking, but you're going to demand that we're going to take one of your own people and crucify him because you don't like him. What the hell? <laughs> well, and the, the weird thing, too, is like in that period of, you know, say the first century, um, for probably a good century prior and after – uh, there was a lot of different people coming in and out who were preaching, you know, the good news. And they all were attributed to having, you know, miraculous powers of healing and, you know, multiplication of food and so on. Um, so it, the idea really of, of Jesus being sacrificed was more of a sedition thing. He was he was trying to subvert the government authority by saying, "Well, no, we could be free if, you know, you guys became the kingdom of God instead of, you know, just going along with the Romans, etc." So, he was preaching some dangerous ideas which existed prior to him, you know, among the Essenes uh that you can read in um the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um there's one called the War Scroll, I think it's called, that talks about the war between, you know, light and darkness and so on. Then you go into Zoroaster, who talked about that good and evil, light and darkness, etc., etc. Um, and he's basically, you know, considered the origin of the whole duality thing, right? So hmm. the good guys versus the bad guys, whereas previous to that, deities themselves weren't wholly good or wholly bad. They were simply deities like people that had pettiness and bickering and, you know, affairs and, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. I mean, like... They were people. Exactly. <laughs> the old gods and that's have one, always been like that. And that's one of the things that I find, I, I, I don't know, I guess hardest to swallow 
um, with uh, the with a lot of the mainstream uh, fates. Um, not to run down, you know, the the people down the corner at the chapel, but the concept that you have a deity who is nothing but benevolent, and then another deity who is nothing but um, but malevolent, is I I can't wrap my head around that. I mean, I know that it came from Zoroaster, and I know that it came from several other similar ideas of benevolent deities and malevolent deities but to think that there's somebody that is all one thing and all nothing else it's like okay yeah you need the duality you need the uh, binary so that you can understand good versus evil but if you have a deity that's all good that's all loving that's all nice that's all kind that has no negativity in them at all they wouldn't be able to breathe. Well, and that's where you get the weird <laughs> conflict in, in, you know, ancient Christian sources where they're like, is there one God or is there two? Because the Old Testament God's a bastard. The New Testament God <laughs> doesn't really do anything. And Jesus is just kind of going, hey, folks, look at that. God is there, but he's not going to really get in your way. Um, you know, and... There were actually heretics who were like tortured and, and killed because they were like, "Wait, this is kind of possible. Like, why shouldn't there be two deities in in the old versus the New Testament?" Like, mm-hmm. um, and then of course, I mean, there's there's like the the arguments with, you know, is Jesus literal or is he like just another, you know. And then that's where you get Satan coming into the whole thing because he's got to have a bad guy except there's you know this little persistent thing that says, well, if he's part of the universal plan and he's one of the bad guys or the bad guy, then he's just as powerful a deity as the deity we're worshiping is. And you want to blow a Christian's mind? Point that out to them. Point out that Satan is a deity, just as powerful as God is. Well, (laughs) and you you will watch them melt down. (laughs) That's the weirdest thing to me. That that always really sort of confused me because, like, it says in the Old Testament that um, Satan was created with all the angels. He was. Eventually, he became God's favorite, and then he was, like, pissed off because God created humanity and went, you know, he's like, well, okay, wait, you created the angels with an absolute mandate to worship you as our father. You created humanity, flawed and stupid as they are, imperfect in conceivable ways. And yet, you gave them the free option to choose not to worship you. What the fuck? And then... You've been watching Dogma recently, haven't you? I love that movie, actually, but I haven't seen it in years. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's like, the whole idea behind it is like, Lucifer is like, wait, what what the hell is going on here? Why did you create them 
with the choice not to worship you, and we mandatorily have to. Um, that's not going to fly with me. I'm taking whoever will follow me, and we're going to go do our own thing. So, you know, suddenly there's this duality that exists that didn't previously. And yet, mm. it's like, the idea of it somehow is that Satan is so powerful that he can corrupt human beings, but he's the one who has to follow God's mandate mm-hmm. to do what he's and, doing. And yeah, and that's the thing, and that's one of the things that I always uh, got people upset about is, okay, God creates the angels. They must worship him. Then God creates humanity, and they have the option to worship him. But if God's the only game in town, who else are they going to worship? Well, and the funny thing is, <laughs> what's like with the whole idea of creating the angels? I mean, why did Satan suddenly have this problem? Like, why would he even have questioned it? Because if the yeah. angels were forced to worship their father, like, why exactly would it even like matter to him that humans were created with the choice? Like, oh, well, who cares? You know, our thing is this. We don't have a choice. So why are we worried about them having that choice? Oh, you could baffle Christians Um, forever with that discussion. Forever, yes. So, folks, um, as ever, um, we, Joy and I, do not take a salary from the show. Um, We involve ourselves mainly with time and, you know, to varying degrees, levels of research on certain topics. Um, Ultimately, both of us would like to take something away for our time. Um, Joy, once we've recorded these shows, Joy does the editing and posting of each episode on the website, um, magicalmusings.net. And, you know, so the amount of time she puts in She'd like to be able to take something from that, but we also want to be able to offer, you know, stipends to guests, um, you know, and to cover expenses like the website, um, you know, storage, etc. And another important thing that we need is also uh, feedback because no show is complete without feedback, good and bad. Um, if you have questions, comments, criticisms, um, you know, you want to suggest a, a, a show theme um, or anything like that, you can reach us at either Brian or Joy, J-O-Y, at magicalmusings.net, no K in magic. Um, you can also check us out on our personal blogs. Uh, Joy's is wide-worlds-joy.tumblr.com. Mine is cosmic-rebirth.tumblr.com. Um, you can also hit us up there. Um, we're pretty receptive to questions, criticisms, uh, discussions. Uh, if you happen to be a particular you know, if you've followed a certain pagan path for a long time, uh, we have ideas coming up for doing shows on, like, chemeticism, um, Hellenismos, um, 
you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if you, if you're particular, if you're part of a path that is pagan or practices magic or something, and you want to get in touch with us and do a show, then, you know, let's talk. Um, hit us up at our emails, on our blogs, wherever. Um, and if you want to get a tarot reading done, Joy's still offering um, tarot readings. Uh, if you email her and ask, um, can't remember the price for those, but, you know, they're available if you want them. And, yeah, hit us up. Okay. It is so. It is always so. <laughs> it always is. <laughs> okay, now getting back to uh, the topic of the day, and that's pantheons and deities. This all all this that we've been talking about prior to this prior this past hour uh, is prequel, showing how the concept of pantheons started developing. Okay, um, it came from a tribal society where a number of tribes got together and they all agreed that this particular god form was the one that was in charge of the rain. And from there, you had the assignment of jobs to different consciousnesses and the naming of names because humans like to label things and must they must have names. Uh, so that's – in essence, this is where it all came from. Okay. Um there are like like Campbell was saying there are common accepted uh ideas of di divinity jobs, okay? Not all of them appear in every pantheon. Uh a lot of them are kind of rolled into other um positions like the god of youth uh maybe the also the deity of all children. Uh, which would also be the deity of uh, activity and uh, happiness and all the things that you associate with childhood and exploration and things like that. So you may not have a deity of youth, but you'll have a deity of childlikeness. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's... For lack of a better term. <laughs> well, and I mean, part of the whole idea, too, is that the gods that are, you know, labeled are, are kind of umbrella labels for um, the various sort of family deities that were given odd jobs. So, you know, say Hermes, who is the god of merchants and thieves and, you know, travel and communication and so on. He's given these jobs, but they might have originated in the sort of various clans that worshipped Hermes, but focused on particular aspects of him. Mm -hmm. And while not realizing that they were focusing on a particular aspect, because remember, it isn't until this deity tries to merge with another deity that you start getting the idea of uh, a name that's common to all those jobs, to the being that does all those jobs. You know, um, because I don't... I, in this new house, we've got a lot of spirits running around. I don't give names to them, but if I were to start describing them to others, they might start giving names to them, and you know, I might or might not decide that that's what they want to be. You know, and it's it's completely up to those spirits whether or not they're going to do it. Now, that's because I'm polite. 
uh, people that that aren't would go, oh well, okay, that's that's the same, okay, and so I'm going to call them that, you know, and might not bother checking, um, but it would still be the same thing, you know. Uh, it would be the the merger of two ideas of what this spirit does as a profession, because apparently everything has to have a profession. Clearly, <laughs> it's. It, it's one of the the curses of being human. We uh, we all have to have a job. It's true. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, you have things like you know the mother goddess. You have uh, things like the god of war, the god the the well. Although to be I'm fair, god- it's the curse of being Vogon too. Oh, it is. No, their curse is bad poetry. <laughs> That's true. The blessing, the blessing uh, is that everyone has a job and bureaucracy uh, okay. rules it. There you go. That's it. <laughs> anyway. um, and I'm saying gods and goddesses because the you know beauty is usually associated with femininity. Uh, it doesn't necessarily follow though, because in the Celtic pantheons, the deity of beauty is male. So you know. And I mean, in the northern. Pantheon too. I mean, you've got Balder, who is kind of like perfect, beautiful, you know, etc. He's like the ideal. Um, yeah. Whereas you get um, in the Greek pantheon. I mean, you've got Apollo, who's also associated with beauty and youth and so on. But he's got like a thousand other things too, right? So true. Yeah, I mean. <sighs> Just a cursory look at just about any pantheon, and you can start picking out classes of deities. These deities are um, take care of people. These deities take care of places. These deity takes care of professions. You know, and you can start slotting deities into those different jobs. True. But it's not. But you know, there's going to be some that are in various different places altogether. Um, when I was teaching paganism a long time ago, I started with um, one of the the ideas when you start doing this and start studying deities is the concept of pantheons and jobs within the pantheon. And so I was like, look, here's you know a list of general deities jobs. You know, if you want to start looking at various deities and sticking them in there. This is what you're going to find. You're going to find a deity of the sun. You're going to find a deity of the rain. You're going to find a deity of the home. You're going to find a deity of the parents, the of fertility. You're going to find a deity of the crops. You're going to find a deity of the hunt. Night. The hunt. Night. The wild places. And you're going to find all of these deities. And if you think about any pantheon that you know fairly well – you can see, okay, this deity, Balder here, is the god of uh, beauty. We've got um, Aphrodite that's the goddess of beauty in Greek. We've got uh, him that's uh, the god of beauty in the Celtics. We've got this person in the Germanic uh, – the well, that's the Norse. Um, in the, the Baltic states, we've got this deity that's in the diasporic religions. You know, We've got this deity, uh, Amaretsu. Uh, Amaterasu uh, in Japan for the same job, you know. And Amaterasu is like the goddess of 
the sun and you know so on i mean her her, her secondary <laughs> title is um okami great spirit and she's well, actually okami, the sun she's the sun well okami is how they say god um because o means greatly respected and kami is spirit so you have greatly respected powerful spirit you can also have kami sama which is uh, basically the same thing, just a different way of saying it. Of course um, it is. There's five ways to say <laughs> the same word in Japanese, I'm sure. Of course. <coughs> but yeah, Amaterasu is uh, the deity, uh, the goddess of the sun, but also a beauty of intelligence of you know this, that, and the other. Um, Athena could be stuck in as uh, the goddess of, of beauty as well. It's a different type of beauty. It's not physical beauty. It's mental beauty. It's wisdom. Um, you could substitute um, – oh, I just drew a blank on his name. I can see the painting of Describe him. Describe him. I'll probably know him. Uh, AD&D's uh, first edition deities and demigods, the Norse section. Do you know the one I'm talking about? No idea. <laughs> What's he the god of? Right. Because I could probably guess from this. It's another one of beauty, and uh, he's and also some like the tamed lands. Um, not tear. Um, no tears. Like justice. Stuff like that. Anyway, yeah, there's 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 several deities that you know have the same job, essentially just different aspects. Well, and of again, it. that comes from the whole idea of like house worshipped deities where. They're like, yeah, he's our god of such and such, and you know, their version of the same deity is focused more on whatever. I mean, like on Tumblr, um, Apollo has been granted the the responsibility for strappy sandals and um, something else, like some modern thing, and you know, various other deities have been given other aspects as well you know in the modern world so mm -hmm. you know and then you also have um wait a minute i had a point and it skittered away <laughs> that's normal for us you that's normal that is we um, find our way eventually well um we were talking about house deities and Oh, okay, and that's where you get uh, the it folding into uh, the progression of the the white goddess syndrome. Okay, now you've heard us make a couple of disparaging comments during this uh, two hours, and we're going to make a heck of a lot more right now. So if you like uh, Mr. Graves and his seminal work on deities, um, skip forward a little because <laughs> you're not going to like this part. Uh, Robert Graves, I actually blame completely and entirely for the um, concept that I call the mosh pit of divinity, um, where Wiccans and modern pagans and New Age pagans tend to take all deities and shove them into one person. And there's a couple of reasons for this. First off, the the okay, there's a couple of reasons that they do this. 
the idea that there's a universal consciousness out there that uh, takes care of us and pays attention to us and everything like that is one that comes straight from Christianity. Okay. And the higher I'll, power. That your fates are, you know, left to. There is a place for it in modern paganism. This is not that concept. Okay. That concept is that all deities, because they are a deity, is one deity. That all female deities are the mother goddess. And that all male deities are the god. Okay? And this is where the mosh pit of the de deities comes from. And I blame Graves because he's the one that, that, that came out with this concept back in the 50s and screwed it up. Let me, tell, let me give you a little history. Robert Graves was a poet, and he was writing um, some material together, and he started researching the uh, deities. And he tried to be Joseph Campbell years before Joseph Campbell came along and without Joseph Campbell's library, and he fucked it up. <laughs> I mean I'm going to lay it right out there. He put – all female deities as a mother-nurturing goddess, except all female deities are not mother-nurturing deities. Exactly. A lot of them are insane, uh, chew your flesh off your bones, uh, leave your eyeballs – suck your eyeballs and use them for juju beads, you know, deities. And then there's just as many that could give a shit less about humanity. Well – I mean, the the problem comes with this notion that Wicca has of of sort of cramming every deity form into either the god or the goddess. Um, whereas you get something like Hinduism, where they say basically that every deity is just a facet of the source. You know, um, because ultimately, it, it's not a matter of every individual deity. It's more like you've personalized the source so that it, you can better relate to it. Um, mm -hmm. And Christianity probably adopted a lot of those concepts from the ancient world because you get like, um, was it Amenhotep? Who, no, it wasn't, Akhenaten, who uh, decided that all the ancient Egyptian deities were going to be one. You know, they were the source, mm -hmm. the light, you know, they were illumination itself. Um, and all his, you know, subjects for a while until they just kind of went, uh, he is our pharaoh, so let's go with it. Um, they're like, wait. And no. at that point, the pharaoh was the chief god. I mean, he was a, a living god in, in charge of everybody. And so going against him was pretty much saying um, God is not right. He really was. <laughs> I mean, the pharaoh is is – considered an embodiment of like Osiris or was it Horus I know it's one of those two but he's basically considered a a manifestation of you know the god so if you didn't you know toe the party line and follow the um the pharaoh's obsessions and insanities you were committing heresy not just an illegal pro thing uh, you you know church courts and the whole thing and burned at the stake and yeah <laughs> go ahead it's true um but yeah 
like it seems to have come down to us through sort of neo-paganism and modern Wicca and that sort of thing that all the female deities are one goddess and all the male deities, regardless of their aspects, their personalities, you know, their particular sexual orientations or whatever, are one god. And, you know, those two themselves now, are facets of the one source. And it's like, well, yeah, okay, I guess, but... The way I finally uh, resolved it in my head is I can see a composite consciousness that is made up of all the deities, but also made up with all consciousness in existence, including us. And that consciousness is out there someplace, and it is – we are reflections of that in that – just by us being ourselves and doing what we would normally do, we are fulfilling functions that that consciousness needs done. For example, okay, um, let's take the scale down from absolute infinite everything down to one person. The consciousness we're talking about is the person that's wandering around. Okay, The individual consciousnesses that make up that person, however, are the mitochondrial consciousnesses inside the cells. Okay, So the, the mitochondrial essences in there have their own thing. They're doing their own thing. They only know what they're doing. They only know what they can see around them with the other pieces of mitochondria in the cell and maybe might be able to see a couple of other cells too. But they can't conceive of a human being from that level. Yeah. I mean, they may know that they're part of a human being, but they're, they're, they're not able to relate to it because it's so damn different. Well, yeah, it, it's so, like the whole concept of a liver cell only knowing what a liver cell does and you know, a brain mm-hmm. cell only knowing what a brain cell does. And, you know. and that's exactly it, and that's what I think we're dealing with. We're dealing with a cosmic consciousness that is on such a different level from us. We can't relate to it at all, so we try to come up with concepts that we can relate to, but ultimately they wind up being just the same as us. Exactly, like dots you know? on the page of a comic book. Mm-hmm. You know, and at that point you're also dealing with uh, people. Oh well, the 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 human that we are part of will take care of us, and. I am special to that human, and he pays attention to me always, and it's like bullshit. That human couldn't care less about that cell that's being clipped off on his nail. You know, it's it's dead excrement from him. You know, you're, you're nothing. He probably won't even notice that you're there. He just got rid of 100 billion cells. I mean, why would he keep you around and be concerned about your, you know, what you're doing? Well, and <laughs> as long as you're functioning right. I think that's the thing matter? too, right? I think that's kind of the the point of um, crisis of faith that a lot of people get into, um, mm-hmm. where they kind of reach a point in their lives where they they kind of go, "Wow, like this this." This belief in deities and all that sort of stuff has really done nothing for me. My life is fucked up. And mm-hmm. no matter how I, you know, offer or worship or whatever 
the deities of my personal preference, they've done nothing for me. Like, my life is still fucked up. And it really messes with people who have placed a lot of their being and identity self into, into that, the, yeah. the faith that they've professed, right? Um, it, it's the dark night of the soul that you hear about in, like, Christianity and, you know, in all matter of spiritual paths. I mean, people hit that point, yeah. and a lot of them don't know how to react to it because there's nothing to tell you that, that like, how to cope with that reality because you've been told exactly. your entire life there is a God. He gives a damn exactly what you do every minute of every day of your life if you lose that faith if you question the reality of it you're fucked and there's nothing you can do because he will punish you for even asking yeah and that's <laughs> that's one of the that's one of the catch 22s of christianity they want you to grow up and mature but they want you to stay clinging to this child um mindset of God loves me and will take care of me no matter what. And it's like, no, you can't have it both ways. It's cake and eating it too. You know, have you come to this concept yet? Well, <laughs> and I wonder if you and I shouldn't do a collab um, article about it um, for the website. You know, dealing with that crisis of faith because I know that in my teens I was like very enthusiastic Wiccan. Um, then some shit happened, and, you know, I got to that point myself. I got to that, like, dark night of the soul where I was faced with, like, do I want to die? Like, is there a point to any of this kind of thing? Mm -hmm. um, and I I imagine it, it's quite common, you know, that people face that moment in their lives, and there's no answers for them because it's like, oh, you've got a problem? Figure that shit out yourself. Get over it. Yeah, and unfortunately, the get over it uh, idea is not one that's going to fly very long. I mean, there are some very strong-willed people that can do that, that can uh, go okay and go from being a very devout, devout theist to being an atheist uh, by turning their head. Most people, however, can't because it's so much of their identity, and that's part of the problem. And yeah, we could probably do an article about that or something, or even an entire show about it, because um, it would too. it would probably take an entire show to do that. Um, True. You know, but so there is a concept with the the overall universal being. I can see that happening. So. In an attempt for us to relate to that universal being that doesn't give a shit about us, uh, we create the, the dichotomy, the male-female, the god-goddess, uh, which Graves um, went apeshit over, um, and which I went no as soon as I came across it because, I'm sorry, the Morrigan and Demeter are two totally different people. It's very true. Uh, <laughs> That's very, very true. Oh, you know, and it's it's like taking okay two de two deities that because they're female they're both the same female uh, deity. It's it's kind of like saying that two deities that are both war deities they'll do well in a ritual together, and then calling on the Morrigan and Mars in the same ritual, which well <laughs> that was my big issue with um like. Wicca when I was kind of first discovering it was like 
there were so many authors that were kind of encouraging you to pick and choose between pantheons. Like, hey, yeah. here's a god of, you know, the Greeks who, you know, let's say Apollo. You know, you can put Apollo into the, you know, into your altar and you can choose to put, um, let's go, Caridwin into your altar <laughs> oh, as well. And just by the lore alone, I mean, you know those two are horrifically different. Like, um, Caridwin herself is, is basically the goddess of witchcraft. You know, she's the goddess who kind of made Taliesin into who he became, you know, and Taliesin yeah. in the Welsh, you know, mythologies is a very important figure because he's like the ascended master kind of thing. He's like the, the Buddha, the the Jesus of the Welsh um, mythologies. He's like the supremely enlightened, knowing everything being. Um well, that's because he was put in charge as a child while he was still unenlightened of uh, stirring the cauldron of wisdom and intelligence that she was brewing up for her child. Exactly. And it bubbled up. It, it burst onto his fingers. He stuck them in his mouth, uh, Taliesin did. Uh, three drops were on there, and he got all the benefit of all the potion, and all the rest of the batch was like shit. Exactly. And she got pissed. Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> as you would. It's it's an interesting story too, because I mean, if you look at spiritual alchemy, um, every pantheon has a story that you can relate to it. But anyway, so you've got Caridwin, who's who's like this angry, vengeful woman who who kind of goes, "Okay, you fucked up the potion that I was making for my son, who is so ugly that." I don't think he has a chance in life. <laughs> and so she I don't have that. enough pork chops to get people to play with him. That's true, exactly. So she's like <laughs> she's got this beautiful daughter, she's got this really hideous son. She's like my daughter will do fantastically in the future. She'll marry the you know the right man, she'll have a great life, you know, beautiful kids. My son on the other hand is ugly as a monkey's butt. And, you know, she kind of goes, I know what I'll do. I'll make a potion and grant him the Awen, divine inspiration. So she goes through this year and a day of, of processing in this potion. And this kid and this old man are looking after the potion. The kid, you know, is like dutiful in his his responsibility to keep the fire fed and, you know, so on. The old man's stirring it. And then... The last day, she Caridwin just before it's her, decanted. For yeah, <laughs> I mean, Caridwin brings her son there. She's ready, the last minute, to like prepare this drink for her son, and then it hisses and fizzles and hits Guyenbach, the unenlightened Taliesin, on the finger, and he reacts by sucking that you know hot spot on his finger. And this is where the three dots in the Awen symbol come from because they symbolize the three drops that bubbled up. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, he gets, like, he suddenly knows everything there is to know. He knows the past, the present, the future. He knows she's, she's She goes scary. after him and she's trying to kill him. And you get the sword and the stone uh, wizard's duel exactly. between Matt, Adam Mim and, and Merlin. 
literally. They change into like 28 different things, and they keep responding to each other's. And finally, at the very end, she turns into a kernel of corn, and she turns into a hen and pecks him up. Without even hesitating, she doesn't have to look for any corn, you know, any other grain. She just finds him and eats him. And then she becomes pregnant. You know, story continues, and he becomes Taliesin. Um, anyway, so you put her on your altar next to Apollo, who is the god of strappy sandals and music and inspiration and light and not the sun. And the sun. And the, the, and the throwing. describes the sun after he fucked around with Helios's chariot, but well, he ultimately then he, you know, had this. He also had a child that, you know, decided to drive the sun for a little while and went down towards the ho- towards home and started burning everything up and then drove way up high and then we got ice icebergs everywhere. That's true. I remember that story <laughs> they killed him. But yeah, I mean, you've got like Apollo who's who's like bisexual and experimental and she's he's just like flamboyant and fun loving and he just tries all sorts of things. He's he's like the god who heals plagues and, you know, so on. Was it him? So what do these two deities have in common on the Wiccan altar? They're both really, really bad parents. <laughs> yeah, and they... I mean, honestly, even the the image I have in my head of them doesn't match. Like, you, you've got Apollo, I imagine he's, like, shining blonde hair. You know, he's, like, this ultimate picture of like male beauty and then you've got like Caridwen who's kind of you know a woman in her 40s she's got like red or Trumpy. um red or auburn hair and she's she's like a mother she's got saggy boobs you know she's <laughs> she's she's an she's angry frumpy. woman she's kind of you know this frumpy middle-aged woman who's who's like pissed off because, you know, the most gifted bard who's, you know, in the land came as a result of her basically trying to improve her ugly son, you know. So, <laughs> like, their stories are completely incompatible. They they lived entirely different lives in their respective stories, etc. So, those don't make sense when you pair them in an altar. Um, no. And my uh, my uh, Morgan and Mars allusion just a little bit ago, it goes even worse than that. They're, the cultures were enemies. Remember, Mars is the Roman god of war. He goes, they go tromping into some place and take over. Well, the Morgan is the Irish deity of war and combat. And so the you know Celts are going to resist, and there's the Morrigan, and these two deities are you know diametrically opposed to each other because the cultures are mortal enemies, and they're trying to kill each other. So you bring you know, yeah, they're both gods of war, but they're blood enemies, and you bring them into you know a circle and don't expect lightning and thunder and lots of conflict going on. You're really stupid. <laughs> well, and the funny thing too is. The way I seem to remember the Morrigan being described, she's kind of like that aftermath battlefield crow. You know, she's like the carrion That's eater. one of her aspects. And yeah, that's one Mars of her is like the aggressive, let's go to war kind of deity. <laughs> you know, and it's like, 
Well, that's a bit weird because now you've got like the the <laughs> heavy pro battle, like let's get the fuck on with this, and then you've got like the the goddess who's like, oh yeah, they're they're killing each other and leaving the bodies to rot for me. Kind of There's thing. carrion here. So it it just <laughs> like the whole thing just flows really weirdly because when you look at Roman and Irish or Roman and Welsh or Roman and, well any really history there's just this aggressive battle that happens with people who resist like there's the majority of you know the empire that forms because they're like well why not rome's building roads they're bringing trade across the the entire empire you know it's a good thing if we go along with that so there a lot of cultures just sort of went sure what the hell you know Mm -hmm. put up a statue of the caesar fine no big deal then you get to the British Isles, and the entire history of that, you know, occupation is violence, just strict. Well, it started when they started moving into Spain and France and everything. Because remember, they started out in True. Italy. They spread west, or they spread east, and to the Russian steppes and everything like that. And then they started spreading north into the Gallic states. And that's where that's why France is considered uh, Gaelic, because it is one of the cultures that splintered off of the Celts, uh, the G Celts, I think. And they resisted and kind of wore the Romans down and wore Julius Caesar down. And then they get into Britain and get their asses handed to them by Boudicca and really retaliate with a lot of. If you ever look her up. And then, you know, really retaliate and take over most of Britain. And then they start moving up into Scotland, and the Scots went no fucking way. And they were so persistent that they just built a wall and said, y'all stay back there. Yes, the naked, (laughs) woad-covered men fighting, screaming, you know, battle-hardened and erect. And they're just like, um, this is weird. You can keep (laughs) Y'all stay back there. (laughs) Yeah. And then they tried moving into Ireland, and the Druids just went, no. And they went, okay, fine. (laughs) They tried to move into Wales, and you've got, like, stories of them, of the the Welsh. Yeah, exactly. The Welsh (laughs) Druids are, like, screaming curses at them, and they describe the the females of Anglesey (laughs) as being, like, wild hair, dressed in black, shouting curses. And they're like, this is a bit more than we need. We can just leave that alone for a while. And then they just didn't. I mean, they they abandoned the whole idea of trying to claim more of the Empire. Um, you can actually see it in the movie um, The Last Legion as well. Um, that tells the story of, like, not Arthur, but Uther. And, you know, it's uh, Freddie Highmore, I think, who plays Uther Pendragon as a kid, only he's known by a different name because he's not yet Uther, the son of the dragon. Um, And it goes through his little life story and Merlin's there and so on. It's a great fun movie, (laughs) good story, but it talks about that, you know, that exhaustion the Romans felt, you know, having done so much battle with the Brits, you know, trying to take over and then just being fed up and, you know, the Roman legion that was posted there is just like, no, forget this fighting thing. We'll just become part of their 
thing. You know, we'll live a peaceful life as farmers and we'll just go about our business. And, and then they tried doing the same thing, you know, moving further up up the Rhine River into Germany, and they lost three entire fucking legions yes. <laughs> by moving up in there. I mean, you know, when you when you're trained to fight in phalanxes, and you've got long lines, and you've got people next to you, and they know what they're doing, and we all know how we're moving, and we're doing this, and we're going here. You get in trees where you can't stand next to people. It's true. <laughs> you become really fucking vulnerable. The fighting tactics just don't work when you're not on paved roads. <laughs> hey, look, we're in a field. We can fight. And then we're in the forest. No, this doesn't work very well. Wait a second, why is my sandal coming off and staying in the ground? It's all sticky here. <laughs> I can't move. I imagine, too, that some of the Germanics were attacking from the trees and stuff, too, and they're like, hey, wait, oh, yeah. they were... our whole shield wall thing doesn't work. What's going on here? Why is this failing? <laughs> yeah, the, the Germans used guerrilla tactics, I mean perfectly and they wiped out three legions of roman soldiers well considering that you have like the roman legions the like the, they sent scouts to build bridges and stuff so they could get across rivers i mean doesn't that just tell you like hey wait they're building a bridge we should kill them before the romans get there <laughs> It's like hey, hey, they're building a bridge. Let's go across it, kill them, and then keep going and destroy the bridge behind us. <laughs> that too. I mean, it, history is just full of these weird battle tactics. But I guess in those days, you really didn't have an option because you couldn't send drones to do the fighting for you. <laughs> Well, yeah, you could. They were called slaves. Uh, okay, fair <laughs> enough, yes. You, slave, I don't care that you can't afford shoes. You go fight until you die. And if Go over there, fight people, those strange people. <laughs> if they kill you, it's no big loss to me. It's true. It's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Oh, you didn't have a part <laughs> in this decision. I never cared about your answer. You're going, or I'm going to kill you here. <laughs> oh. Okay. Another patented <laughs> off the road technique here. Okay. Getting back to so yeah, um the the mosh pit of the gods, let me just state this for the record, it can be done, but you gotta be really, really damn careful. You can have a ritual with the Morrigan and Mars in it as the deities. But you got to be a really strong personality. You have to be able to look at a deity and go, "No, sit down. You're you're not being nice. Just sit, sit up. Don't want to hear it. Sit. Good girl, Mars. Put that sword up, Mars. Mars. Do I have to spank you? <laughs> and do it that way. You have to be able to get them to cooperate with each other. Because I'll tell you something. Uh, in a, if you get them together and it's in the proper frame of mind both of them would be doing the good old mercenary backslapping have a have a drink on me buddy buddy thing and telling war stories but you got to do it right well <laughs> it's i mean it, and that's the problem the the baby pagans just getting into it being encouraged in all this they don't have that experience they don't have that that drive, that that mental fortitude to be able to force it. 
So they would let it escape from them, and the deities would just go back to being themselves, and you'd have lots of problems. Go ahead. Well, it occurs to me, too, that, like, the whole idea of it is, I mean, it's based on not knowing enough about the pantheons you're working with. Like, it's just encouraging ignorance kind of thing. Um most people focus on a given pantheon because of the fact that there's so much to know in each pantheon. If you're mixing and matching, you know, between pantheons and you haven't taken the time to get to know the deities respective, you know, to those pantheons, I mean, you're just not gaining the benefit of the knowledge you could be gaining. Never mind being able to interact with the deities, um, in their full capacities. And that's part of the problem. I mean, there there is so much it, that to learn from the pantheons. But a lot of the New Age Wiccan authors uh, are encouraging you to study, but their books. They're encouraging you to go out and buy Llewellyn stuff. Well, they're, encouraged, they're, they're telling you, you know, this is necessary to know as long as I'm the only one teaching it. And that's driving their profits, and that's a great thing, but it's not encouraging good scholarship, which is what's needed. Yeah, definitely. I mean, any reasonably honest author is going to you know, encourage you to read their books, but at the same time, they're going to tell you, you know, there are resources that existed prior to the Internet that you might want to check out so that you have a better idea mm-hmm. of what you're doing. Um, and... Like, crap, I'm pretty sure I had an idea here. Lost track of it. Uh-oh. Crap. The gremlins went through the phone line and stole yours. Yes, yes, they did. <laughs> okay, so getting back to uh, the male, the, the god and the goddess. The concept of there being a female goddess and a male god is interesting, but it's the same kind of thing as trying to relate to the is, the one deity. It's still very foreign. The only thing that makes it a little bit more comforting is that it is male or female. I mean, if you think about any woman in the world, they probably encompass every single type of female deity you can possibly think of. Same thing with males. Every single type of male deity that you can think of. So we can relate a little bit easier to the concept of a god and a goddess through that. And duotheism is okay, but only in that limited amount. Much easier is to take all of the gods and all the goddesses as individuals and look at them. Yes, look at their pantheons. Okay, look at… Um, how they interrelate to each other. Uh, also look at how those same deities cross cultural barriers. Because one of the things that I found just absolutely fascinating when I was looking up uh, Lou and doing an article on him uh, for one of the Druid uh, uh, magazines that I was writing for was that it is theorized that Lou of um, Lou Samaldanich of Ireland is the same deity as 
the Luz Lakivis from Wales. <laughs> and I was just thinking of him. Um, and Lug of the Gallic uh, Celts, but also Loki of the Norse. Yeah, I mean... Now, and the argument with Lou Samaldanich and Loki being the same, and there were a number of points that went through that said they both did this, they both did this, they both did this, they both did this, you know, in the stories, makes it really obvious. And then I started thinking about the cultural context of both of those. Lou is seen as a great hero in Ireland. He was a king for centuries in Norse mythology. Lou or Loki is the enemy. He is the one that brings destruction. And if you look at if you take a hero from one peoples and put it into the pantheon of another peoples, that's exactly what he becomes. It's true. And it's like, wow. <laughs> well, and I mean, if you look at the um Indo-European like culture as a, a whole I mean you can see a lot of those like um, linguistic similarities between names and, and between languages as well um, so it does make sense and yeah I mean the hero of one culture becomes the you know enemy of another etc um, and it was just really fascinating when I actually looked at that and went, you know, that makes a hell of a lot of sense, given the cultures. Well, and I think that's and part of the whole concept of, like, pagan scholarship that a lot of, like, sort of lightweight authors tend to discourage or tend to mm-hmm. avoid encouraging, I suppose, because they don't actively encourage it. Um, and it it brings to mind a a, a, a quote um, from an author that was really critical of the um, sort of non-committal approach of hipsters in, in modern culture of the past 20 years yeah. um, is the whole idea that, you know, they want to, you know, be involved in this, but they don't want to really get too involved because they want to be able to withdraw their support if, you know, it gets out of hand or it just seems a little ludicrous or whatever. So or it becomes unpopular, yeah. <laughs> instead of committing themselves and being pagan and taking the time to read all these ancient sources and, you know, the comparisons and, you know, so on, um, they just kind of brush the topic with whoever the current author is that they're reading and they you know they're like oh well yeah okay that's great but um whereas you know you and i came up as pagans during the time where you had to actually go through all the effort of of finding all the old books that talked about various pantheons or various aspects of pagan religion and so on i mean and have people at pagan gatherings looking at you going, you mean you haven't read The White Goddess? What the fuck is wrong with you? It's true. Get, get, gettest thou out of my sight until thine hath filled thy brain with the words of graves. <laughs> well, and the, the worst of it is, too, a lot of people read him but don't understand him. Um, 
you know, they're not thinking critically about stuff like that. They they read him. They take what, everything that he says at face value. They're not looking at it critically, and they're not looking at it in, uh, okay, he might be just promoting himself or trying to to sell more books. You know. Well, and to be fair too, I mean, the same is said of um, oh God, Yolo Morganog. Um, the Barthas, yes, they're they're kind of an amalgam of, of his own work and, you know, ancient sources, you know, whatever. But ultimately, it, it's not so much the validity of the historical references. It's more about what he's talking about, because ultimately what he's trying to convey in his work is mm-hmm. spiritual development um, yes, he has, he uses a lot of Christian, you know, Judeo-Christian kind of language, but I can understand that too because of the fact that it, it was predominantly the the language of religion spoken for two thousand years. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people were afraid to bring up ideas that there were gods prior to the God of the Bible, um, etc., mm-hmm. and so, I mean, well, it's like the 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 actual Mabinagion before Lady Charlotte Guest got a hold of it. I mean, there's all kinds of Christian symbolism symbolism in there, and it takes a lot of effort to go through it and pull that stuff out because it wasn't written down until the Christian monks started writing it down. And of course, they're going to put the, their own slathering of their deity on it as they're writing it absolutely. down. Absolutely. Um, Actually, there's a book called From the Cauldron Born by Christopher Hughes that talks about the um, the Taliesin story, um, and he goes through all the like sources and he ta- he like quotes the Welsh because he's a native Welsh speaker, so he he talks about it and he doesn't talk actually on um, one episode of Druidcast, which is well worth listening to. Um, because he does talk about exactly those things, you know, like there's a lot of Christian overlay. You have to pick and pull out the from the names in Welsh um, that speak that have like linguistic cognates of deity form. You know, there's like mm-hmm. Caridwen, and apparently names in Welsh that end when when imply a goddess. You know, um, so I can't think of any other ones offhand right now, but there are other names that he refers to that, that he's like, um, oh, and he says Rhiannon is, uh, there's, there's like mention of her in a particular story, but the fact that her name is this, um, tells you that she was a goddess, etc. So he yeah. goes. Her the name whole means great goddess, just like Morgan does. Nice. So yeah, yeah, he goes through the whole um, Mabinogian with that, you know, in mind. He talks about how the names tell you they were goddesses or whatever, and you know, it's obvious that they were, you know, Christianized into witches or what have you, but that doesn't reduce what they actually were. Um, so you have to kind of take a look at that when you're reading about pantheons as well. Like if you're getting a a modern author who's trying to, um, draw on 
ancient sources, they're going to put a twist on because of the fact that most sources we have for Norse, Celtic, etc. are going to be Christian sources. Um, Mm -hmm. If you are trying to get to know the Hindu deities, for instance, they're going to have older sources that are not Christianized. Um, The Bhagavad Gita is a part of the Mahabharata. Um, You've got the Rig Veda, you've got other Vedas that talk about the Hindu creation stories, about the gods, about, you know, and unfortunately, ancient aliens is playing with those horrifically because yes the gods do fly in cities you know um they they fly in vimanas which are actually flying vehicles and they're the mahabharata tells a story of a cosmic battle that takes place you know above the earth in the in the heavens where they're using basically what are described as nuclear devices um oh nice to battle each other <laughs> And to destroy cities on the ground, you can also hear um, in documentaries and, and historic like works on history that talk about Hindu countries, um, you know, and sort of outlying countries from India. They have sort of um, archaeological evidence that points to battles involving horrific thermal weapons um, and so on and so forth where the evidence suggests that they were like basically melted um, and so on. So, I mean, there's a lot of backing for the Hindu deities um, because the historical documents that talk about them are the Vedas. They're religious scripts, but they are also really fascinating mythologies. And if you read a version of the uh, Bhagavad Gita, also called the Gita. Um, it tells you the story of Arjuna, who is basically the, the representation of mankind, and Krishna, who is one face of Vishnu. And he tells Arjuna that, yes, you're in the middle of a conflict. He's basically stopped a battle in the middle, like right on the crest of the first strike. Um, so Arjuna's army is here, And these are all, like, his family, and the battle is against his other family that he's got all these conflicts with. And ultimately, Krishna tells him, the bad guys in this fight are just aspects of yourself that you haven't taken control of. So the whole story tells you how to become self-realized, but it's told in the concept of, a battle between the good forces. This is all the positive aspects of who you are and the bad guys who are like your ego and, you know, your desires and all these other things that are out of control. So if you take control of those, the battle is won not through violence, but through kind of assimilation. And, Hmm. you know, this relates to tarot because <laughs> it probably does. I could probably go into a weird sort of connection there, but yeah, no I problem. mean, that's the whole idea between it. And um, or you could always take the Marvel version and uh, take some of the Guardians of Oa and transplant them to uh, Earth and put them on top of a big mountain, and then you get all of the legends in that oh area. God. <laughs> oh God. 
Marvel and yeah, don't take your actually, scholarship from Marvel, please. <laughs> I actually did that. I actually wrote a fanfic where I, uh, there was an explosion on Oa, and uh, two of the Guardians got catapulted back in time ten thousand years. They wound up on Earth. They became not only all the Hindu gods but also the Greek gods. Uh, when they started getting uh, caught, uh, they moved to the blue area of the moon where they became the Watcher. And oh dear! You got yeah, and it was it was pretty interesting actually. But anyhow, oh. yes. So read about pantheons, read material that relates to them, but do not read Marvel and think it's historical fact. Right. Unlike um, <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. Oh. And Ancient um, Aliens is interesting, but is not necessarily based on history. So don't go over there sure. either. Um, but yeah, okay, the I think the takeaway from this entire show is uh, know your pantheon, know the deities that you're dealing with, know how they fit into the overall scheme of things, not only in the context of the culture that they're part of, but also in the overall culture of the area and of the time, because just like us, deities change and grow. Definitely. I mean – the the if to read the stories of the Morrigan, you come away with this picture of a vengeful, wild-eyed, going to kill everything and question the corpses deity who is upset because her child was killed and is never going to forgive anybody. Um, but if you deal with her in now, she's mellowed a hell of a lot. She's changed from the Battle Raven and the Washer at the Ford to being the Great Queen, which is what her name means, um, and in charge of an area. I mean even in um, the, the first Battle of Moitura or the second Battle of Moitura, she makes prophecies in there, and she's not wild-eyed. She's not you know, bushy-tailed. She's not going insane. She's you know, making a, a prophecy as to – she's – essentially acting as Hecate in that time period, you know, nice. and people flocked to her uh, and in droves. I mean, Kukulain uh, pledged himself to her specifically, you know, and then when she came in body to him going, hi, here I am, take me, he said, you're a beautiful woman. You don't look anything like the Morgan. Get the hell out of here and off this battlefield before you get yourself killed, bitch. <laughs> and she went, excuse me? <laughs> and that's why she turned against him. Nice. So, you know, it, it changes over time, and they, and they do mellow, and they get different jobs, and they get more interesting things. I mean, I never knew that she was a mother until I really started studying it, and then I was like, oh, well, that certainly explains a few things now, doesn't it? Well, and I think, too, <laughs> that there's room for unverified personal analysis, G UPG in modern parlance um, when you've gotten to know your deities fairly well. I mean, like in meditations and so on, they're going to communicate to you that they like, you know, strawberries or whatever. Um, that's not going to be found in any of the, the, the mythology or, you know, any historical reference. You're just going to be like, right. Hey, wait, you know, Apollo, God of all strappy sandals and hairspray or whatever. 
you know, told me he likes peppermint swirly candies or whatever, you know, that's <laughs> going to be fine for you. And you can offer him all the candy you want. That's just not going to necessarily appeal to someone else who worships Apollo because they've received ideas that, well, okay, Apollo doesn't like strappy sandals. In fact, he thinks um, they're a little bit flashy and foolish. So, But Nike on the other yeah, hand. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, <laughs> during the 80s, he was really into Nike Air. You know, nowadays, not so much. He likes Skechers now, um, et cetera. So, you know, it, it's just a matter of kind of, like, incorporating your own UPG with a, a, a really decent knowledge of the mythology surrounding a particular deity. So mixing and matching we... is tough possible but not recommended when you're starting out yeah and another thing remember not all the lore about these deities was written down i mean we've lost so much that the druids knew about their gods and about the way they interacted with everything simply because the druids didn't write it all down when it got written down was fifth hand stories handed down through two three generations by christian monks who had absolutely no anything any any impetus to to keep it accurate well exactly so they filled in you know where they could with with what they couldn't did know and you know used folk tales and and folklore to try to you know get some of it in but not all of it. Well, and there's no doubt and. that like each monk who copied the text was going, hey, wait, you know, this is kind of interesting, and I kind of want to find out more about whatever aspect they're writing, you know, about because this the the hand to hand like copying of each script was not necessarily going to be exact because each monk was like hey, wait, I'm into this, so I'm going to focus more on these aspects of such and such a story. I'll incorporate a little of this, etc. So there's dozens of ways that each deity story is interpreted because the people who wrote them down took their own spin on each, you know, each retelling. And you also have the problem with um, the this is only the public stuff that was released for public consumption True. at the time. The secret stuff, the, the, the lore and the deep uh, understanding, the mysteries of these faiths weren't written down because they weren't shared with anybody except other people that were in that you know, particular – the clergy of that religion. Well, so – you know, it, it may be that the priests know why you bless with two fingers and sometimes and with the whole hand at other times, but the layman is not going to understand the difference between them, you know, and one's suddenly going to become more holy than the other, you know, five centuries from now. That's true. And I mean, realistically speaking, I mean, the Vatican probably houses a lot of documents about these pantheons and all these mystery religions and stuff that no one will ever see outside of the Vatican because of the fact that they want to, you know, maintain a certain level of control over the experience of their followers. So mm -hmm. the mystery religions that existed before Christianity aren't going to be common knowledge to a lot of people. It's going to be harder for 
pagans who want to get a really good grasp of those to find the documents to support their interest. Um, and it occurred to me as well, sorry, just a quick okay. thought too, that when you're researching um, a given pantheon, you want to take a look at archaeological books about it as well because a lot of the new research will expand what the mythology has said because like in in the example for instance i've got um a book about um stonehenge written by mike parker pearson that talks about the combination of stonehenge and woodhenge and you know the the whole sort of ritual surrounding that um mm-hmm. and if i relied specifically on you know previous mention of of Stonehenge I probably wouldn't have understood that because you only hear about it being you know well full of alignments to stars and that sort of thing so I mean this when I heard about it expanded my interest in Stonehenge profoundly because of the fact that it talks about different aspects that weren't previously known say 30 years ago or whatever Mm -hmm. And understand something when you're dealing with deities and in the – okay, there's two points here. Uh, First, the mythology. You are hearing somebody else's take on a story. It's it's ancient propaganda, literally. They are going to present the information in a way that they feel that the listener is going to need to hear it, and it's not necessarily what's true. The other thing is is that the deity that you come to know… Is never ever going to be the same as the deity that somebody else comes to know, even if they have the same name and the same jobs. It's true. The de- the the Morgan I know is not going to be the same one that Mary knows, and is not going to be the same one that um, oh I don't know somebody out on the internet knows, because. Once again, our experiences with those deities are going to be colored by our own experiences and our own life experiences and what they are showing to us. And one of the really good ways to sort of realize just how that works is to take a look at the New Testament Gospels, too, because the four that are known, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are four separate takes on the Christ story. However... Mm -hmm. There was a lot that was left out. You know, there's the infancy gospel, there's like the gospel of Thomas, the you know, Philip and so on. The Nagamati Library talks about various aspects of the Christ through, you know, Greek mystery religions and um you know, all this other kind of stuff that totally expands on who Christ is but a yeah, Christian there's, isn't there's know the gospel of there's a the gospel of Judas too, which That's if true. you take it at its face value, says that everything that Judas does was planned, and it was part of what was supposed to happen and what had to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it it places Judas in the position of being Jesus's, you know, closest friend, um, and kind of unwillingly going along with this plan to make Jesus the savior because someone had to turn him into the Romans. And that is kind of how they explain the whole Judas hanging himself thing is like, he's overridden with guilt 
because he basically threw his friend to the wolves. Yeah. Toss Jesus under the bus. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, we're we're going to have to do a longer show, a different show on just mythology, although we've done one already. So if you if this is a topic that fascinates you, please go back to our archives on magicalmusings.net and take a li- listen to it um, because we do go into a lot more of this. We're at uh, about two hours now. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to have to end this unless you want to do a, a, another two hours and you know make it a two-parter like we did with the turn. You know what? We could totally do that. I mean, it we could bother me. <laughs> is your schedule clear right now? Um. Well, let me check. Mary, is my schedule clear right now? No, my schedule is not clear. Apparently, we are cleaning and doing stuff. Okay. <laughs> So what I can, what I'll do is, uh, we can uh, end it here, and um, if we want to continue doing it, maybe after a couple of hours of cleaning and such, she will be um, placated, and I can call you back. <laughs> <laughs> we must placate the goddess. You must uh, all research. Well, it turns out that I wasn't able to placate Mary, the goddess of all research, uh, so we, I was not able to call Brian back to finish out another one of these shows. So this is going to be the end of it, and I want to thank everybody for listening uh, and remind you all that if you want to toss a few dollars into the kitty to help us make a living, uh, please come to magicalmusings.net. There's no K in that. Uh, take a look at uh, the donate button. Uh, if you need to get in touch with Brian or I, uh, the address is Brian or Joy at MagicalMusings.net, and there are links on the page to those email addresses. Uh, also, if you want to connect with us on Tumblr, our Tumblr addresses are wide-worlds-joy.tumblr.com and cosmic-rebirth.tumblr.com. Um, we can't wait to hear from you. Uh, give us a, a connect with us and let us know how we're doing, uh, feedback, things like that. And we hope to hear from you again. So talk to y'all later. Bye.